Hello, and welcome to the newest episode in Dialogue Podcasts. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. This season, we're doing a new show called Dialogue Topics, in which we're going to be talking about the history of LDS scholarship on specific themes to show how Dialogue has been a forum for these issues since its founding. Last season, our series Dialogue Heritage traced the whole history of Dialogue from 1966 to the present, discussing its ups and downs and all the great drama of maintaining an independent voice in Mormon scholarship, the arts, and personal essays. You can check out the 11-episode series in our podcast feed or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Learning that history in depth was such an amazing experience, and that got us thinking that there were a lot of great topics to discuss. This year, we're going to do just that. We'll also bring you up to date on these topics with our more recent issues to discuss some of the current trends. All of our topics pages are curated to bring you comprehensive collections of annotated scholarship and may be found at dialoguejournal.com slash topic pages, all one word or navigate there from our homepage. There, you'll find amazing resources and research on tons of issues. This month, we're starting with the first vision. Last year was the 200th anniversary of the event, and at the beginning of this year, Latter-day Saints have been studying it in Sunday school services around the world. This is in many ways the founding story for the prophet Joseph Smith and therefore the founding story for The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Mormonism. It's a key transformative moment for Joseph Smith and takes up a significant portion of his 1838 autobiography, later canonized in The Pearl of Great Price in LDS Scripture. The event and Joseph Smith's description of it encapsulates so many important elements, including Joseph Smith's unique call as a prophet and special relationship to divinity about the method of prayer and questioning, about the importance of divine revelation and others. Many also interpret the story as revealing key truths about the nature of God, as well as about the relationship between the Father and the Son in Trinitarian theology. It's taught in missionary lessons and has received number of depictions in film and art and is synonymous with the opening of the Restoration. So in this episode, we want to understand not just the event as discussed in the scholarship, but how the event has been understood differently over time. This is not, however, a completely comprehensive look at the subject. There are other academic journals that sprung up after dialogue, and there are a number of other biographies of Joseph Smith and other books that discuss the history of the first vision in LDS thought, and we can't cover all of them, except as they come up in the history of dialogue. So, let's get started. It turns out that dialogue was actually central to a series of debates about the First Vision in its very early years. Dialogue is founded in 1966, but there are a few earlier events worth mentioning. About two decades earlier, there was a controversial biography of Joseph Smith, Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History, published in 1945, 
argued that Joseph Smith was a fraud who knowingly deceived his followers, including about the first vision. She argued, based on the available evidence at the time, that there was no evidence prior to 1838 that Joseph Smith ever taught that there was a first vision, a claim that can't be backed up now based on lots of new evidence that's been discovered. The book was and remains a massive success and sensation, and though controversial, it brought in professional historical approaches and methods to the study of the prophet for the first time, really including new documents and discussion of unflattering topics that had been ignored or suppressed by the faithful histories produced by the LDS Church. Though it was slow, it launched a new revolution in the study of Mormonism called New Mormon History. This movement included Latter-day Saint and non-Latter-day Saint scholars, male and female, who wanted to do professional, quote, objective history that wasn't anti-Mormon or pro-Mormon, but rather tried to tell the story of Mormonism. Among these new Mormon history scholars was James Allen, who became a legend in the field. And in just the third issue of Dialogue in 1966, he blows the lid off the first vision story in his article, The Significance of Joseph Smith's First Vision in Mormon Thought. In this foundational piece, he points out that the first vision as we know it is not particularly important in the 19th century. Even in Joseph Smith's life, it had only limited circulation, echoing von Brody's observation. Anti-Mormon literature never mentioned it before 1838. After the 1838 account, it gets more attention, but still nothing like it gets attention later on. In 1961, it had just become a part of the new official missionary teaching plan, so it was receiving renewed attention. Also, in 1965, just a year before this article, Paul Cheeseman wrote his master's thesis at Brigham Young University, An Analysis of the Accounts Relating to Joseph Smith's Early Visions, that was the first thorough comparison of the similarities and differences between the four known accounts up until that point. These have differences in describing what Joseph Smith saw, the age that he was, and others. Allen argues that Smith told people initially, but because the initial pushback Joseph Smith received about the vision, he kept it a secret for many years afterward, thus explaining why it had only been known in limited capacity. But the 1838 account was then the first real public discussion, nearly 20 years after the event. But what's more, its meaning for Latter-day Saints has shifted from an account of Joseph Smith's visit to taking on greater theological significance. Now, one other preceding event that's worth mentioning. In 1965, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, famous anti-Mormons, published Joseph Smith's 1832 account discussed by Cheeseman as evidence that uh, the church had been hiding it and pointing out the contradictions that it had with the 1838 version. Now, in 1969, BYU Studies finally published all the known accounts in Dean Jesse's article that gave both transcriptions of the versions and an interpretation of the various divisions between them. The mystery of why the story wasn't told or known well before 1838 deepened a few years later. In 1968, Reverend Wesley P. Walters published his article, New Light on Mormon Origins from the Palmyra Revival. 
This had been published a year earlier for the Bulletin of the Evangelical Theological Society and was submitted to be published in Dialogue with a roundtable of other historians to discuss it. Dialogue was always, well, about dialogue, and this was an early example of fostering serious conversations. Walters called into question whether there was a religious revival in Palmyra in 1820, finding no historical evidence of one until 1824, and using Oliver Cowdery's separate recollections as contradictory evidence to Smith's. The implications were pretty big. Was the story made up at a later date after all? Was there a better explanation for why it was unknown in the earlier years? Dialogue commissioned a response to the article from young Richard Bushman, who would later write two biographies of Joseph Smith. Bushman noticed that the described revival was said to be near Palmyra, not necessarily in it, so it could have referred to some events in a neighboring town. A special BYU Studies issue was commissioned to address this problem. It made some waves, and dialogue was right at the center of it. These historical challenges were becoming well-known at the time, and historians were on it. Just a small note that a 1970 issue of The Improvement Era, the church's magazine before the Enzyme, James Allen published a short article of the competing accounts describing the competing accounts from Joseph Smith and other contemporary evidence. But the mystery and difficulty in dating the first vision continued in the pages of dialogue in 1970 and 1971 with Stanley Kimball's A Footnote to the Problem of the Dating of the First Vision and Peter Crawley's A Comment on Joseph Smith's Account of His First Vision and the 1820 Revival. Kimball notes that Joseph Smith's family continued to attend local churches after 1820, which would have been strange to do after having been told that none of them were true. Crawley, however, compares Smith's account of a nearby religious revival with others in the 19th century and discovered that they often consumed whole regions, not just individual towns, even if the events were only held in one town. So the early phase of the event of the first vision was concerned with reconciling competing accounts and attempting to fix its historicity. This led to a whole new effort at understanding early Joseph Smith and the question of his origin story. This is Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue. I want to tell you about the Dialogue Podcast Network. In addition to great audio content you'll find in our feed, this collection is made up of shows by Latter-day Saints who wish to bring their faith into dialogue with larger streams of religious thought, like Mormon News Report, which takes a deep dive into topics pertaining to LDS culture, or Beyond the Block, which centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Other podcasts in this network include Gospel Tangents Podcast, Words Fall In, Face in Hat, and Scholars and Saints. For links to these and all the other amazing content Dialogue has to offer, visit dialoguejournal.com. And while you're there, consider donating. Your sustained generosity is what enables us to continue our mission of facilitating dialogue in a spirit of learning and understanding. Thank you.
The next phase turns to questions of meaning and the role that the first vision played and plays in shaping Mormonism itself as a movement. This moved past the historicity questions, considering them largely settled, and focused now on how the narrative had shaped the church itself. Take, for instance, Marvin Hill's 1979 article, A Note on the First Vision and Its Import in the Shaping of Early Mormonism. In it, he argued, quote, The whole quality of Mormon religious life has its beginnings in the first vision in ways that we have not adequately understood. Hill contextualizes Joseph between the impulses of his two parents, Lucy, who wanted to be a part of an organized church community, and Joseph Sr., who was skeptical, believing that they'd all apostatized. From this larger cultural tension in early America, restorationism was born, and early restorationists, like Joseph Smith, were hoping to find empirical, rational accounts for their beliefs that couldn't be settled by appeals to the Bible or creeds. So, the point of the first vision wasn't a truth about the Godhead, but about making a claim among partisans about the true church. But it was also about the pietism, the religion of the heart, the personal encounter with divinity that deeply influenced the meaning of the first vision. In 1981, Stephen Olson writes an article, Joseph Smith and the Structure of Mormon Identity. In this article, he looks at the centrality of the first vision account in Mormon culture itself, especially the 1838 version, as the primary account over all others. He argues that this story really embodies an entire theology of Mormonism, of experiential communication with God, so that it becomes a part of Mormon identity. Since the 1838 account so clearly expresses this theme, it has become the favorite. Smith here is a model for every seeker and believer, which is why the story is so resonant with so many others. This kind of analysis, less about the historical questions and more about its meaning, helped chart a new path of scholarship on this issue. But the historical questions weren't going away. Marvin Hill returns in 1982 with an assessment of the whole issue. The First Vision Controversy, a Critique and Reconciliation, which describes the history of the debate from Fawn Brody in 1946 until the early 1980s, including Reverend Walter's criticisms and anti-Mormon literature like Gerald and Sandra Tanner that were adding to the claim that there was no First Vision, but that it was a later invention. Through the late 1960s and 70s, these were the big issues. And if you just want one article to summarize the issues and arguments up until then, this is it. Agree or not with the arguments, it's an immensely useful survey of the debate itself. So I'm going to conclude this phase with the publication of Richard Bushman's book, Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism in 1984, his first biography of Joseph Smith that treated the early years. Though not published in dialogue, Bushman's biography of the early Joseph Smith settled a lot of these questions for the time and also added further context. It turns out, Bushman noted, visionary experiences like the first vision described by Joseph Smith were quite common in 19th century America.
after the work in the early 1980s, research on the first vision dried up for a long time, at least in the pages of dialogue. The historicity debates had become stale, and there were lots of new things going on, including new research on magic. Book of Mormon debates were getting more intense. It just seemed that people had moved on. Honestly, I was surprised by this, especially when I discovered that it was more than 30 years that Dialogue didn't publish a single article on the first vision after the 1982 article. There was one major development. In 2013, LDS.org published the Gospel Topics essay, First Vision Accounts, that openly discussed the historicity issue. That, along with the Joseph Smith Papers Project, sponsored by the church, there was a new openness to this issue. After further documentary research in the Joseph Smith Papers, there are now 10 known accounts of the first vision from Joseph Smith and others who discussed having heard about it contemporaneously. Though dialogue hadn't been a hub for the conversation in the interceding years, that changed in 2014 with Stan Larson's article, Another Look at Joseph Smith's First Vision. This article focuses on the documentary history of Joseph Smith's earliest accounts, written in his own hand. Larson argues that Joseph Fielding Smith is the one that cut out the handwritten version from Joseph Smith's own hand in his letter book that was then put into his office safe for decades, which explains why the 1832 account was unknown. It seems an intentional effort to deny researchers access to the document, acknowledging implicitly that its content might be challenging. Joseph Fielding Smith relinquished the document in 1963, making it available for the first time and becoming the subject of Paul Cheeseman's 1965 master's thesis. In this article, Stan Larson argues for the historical accuracy of the 1832 account as the earliest and therefore most reliable and least embellished. The most important difference being that in 1832, Smith says he was visited by the Lord, a single personage, while in 1838, he says there were two, the father and the son. LDS.org tried to reconcile this in their discussion, but Larson argued that it was uncompelling. Larson also gives a great historical overview to the use of the first vision. Although the earlier claims of the 1960s and 70s were that the first vision wasn't important in early Mormonism and no one knew about it, that didn't hold up well as more documents surfaced and newer research began to show that it was known. At the same time, further research discovered that the church itself didn't really emphasize the first vision in teaching and public missionary work until the first two decades of the 20th century in the early post-polygamy period. I want to conclude this historical trajectory with a mention of Stephen Harper's 2019 book, The First Vision, Memory and Mormon Origins, from Oxford University Press. Harper worked for many years on the Joseph Smith Papers Project and helped with the Saints volumes published by the church, among other things, and is now the editor of BYU Studies. His book really goes over all of the evidence, from Joseph Smith's time to how the story was used in the 19th century to its use and abuse in the 20th century, including the suppression of the 1832 account. I also learned that the Tanners knew about this copy in Joseph Fielding Smith's safe as early as 1960 and tried to get access to it, but were refused. 
Anyway, there are lots of great stories from the further and more recent past documenting how Joseph Smith's first vision account has been understood and used in the memory of Latter-day Saints. If you want a great presentation and discussion of the book, check out Stephen Harper's episode in Dialogue Lectures podcast number 48. The book and podcast episode are highly recommended if you want more of the story. And we hope to continue the scholarly conversations here at Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. This episode has been the first in our Dialogue topic series on the First Vision. If you want to support Dialogue, subscribe or donate on our webpage. This show is a part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. Like Beyond the Block, a podcast that centers the marginalized in Mormonism. We're also pleased to announce that the podcast Scholars and Saints has joined the Dialogue Podcast Network. Check out all the shows at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network.